Please turn with me again in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, we'll read from verse 8 to the end of the chapter. Our concentration will be on the last verse of the chapter, but we need to read these preceding verses in order to bring us to the strong rationale behind the verse. Second Peter, in the latter part of your New Testament, Chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. But forget not this one thing, beloved, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth And the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy living and godliness, looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God, by reason of which the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. But, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for these things, give diligence that you may be found in peace, without spot, and blameless in his sight, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, wherein are some things hard to be understood, which the ignorant and the unsteady or the unsteadfast rest as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing these things beforehand, beware, lest being carried away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Now please again join me as we pray together. Our Father, we have utterly no confidence in ourselves. 
And we thank you that you have eliminated from us any thought that you should do anything for us or to us or in us because of any good in us. We come before you utterly dependent upon you, waiting for you and looking to you, aware, Lord, that there are souls hanging in the balance, aware, our Father, that the enemy of the faith and the adversary of our souls, the devil himself, like a roaring lion, is stalking about this place, seeking those who sit here that he may devour. We are aware, Lord, that in the hearing of your word there is salvation. And that if the enemy can keep it from being heard, he can keep people from being saved. And they perish. We know that in the preaching of your word is salvation. And that if the enemy can limit the power of that preaching, he can hinder the working of redemption applied to the heart. And so, our Father, we look to you as the God who sent your Son and held him not back, that you would in your great mercy help us now preach clearly with power in your Spirit and help us hear and obey what we hear. Our Father, we would also not forget these ladies who are ready for a delivery of babies. We would ask that you would in your very mercy help them even as they sit to hear that the very word preached may encourage and strengthen their hearts as they prepare for these hours of labor, that you would build them up to look to you, and that you would have mercy upon them and upon all of us in giving to them strong and healthy children who will grow to serve and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, every single thing for which we pray has to come from you, who are the Father of lights, who gives all good things, and so we ask for these good things. We ask knowing we don't deserve any, but we need them. We ask believing that you are gracious and holy and awesomely powerful God, unlimited in your ability and infinite in your mercies. Come near now in the preaching of your word and bless your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The verse on which I want to focus your attention is in verse 18 of chapter 3 of Second Peter. The first half of the verse, the exhortation to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Growth is the sure mark of genuine life, both in nature and in grace. The emphasis that the Bible places upon growth is an emphasis which encourages the discouraged because the concept of growth implies that there is room to grow, that there's time to grow. God is willing to be patient with us as we grow. He does not expect us to be there all at once. Or at first, the whole idea of growth in the scripture encourages us who aren't where we ought to be, where we want to be, or where we thought even that we might have been by now. It still says grow. That implies God has given us room to grow. But also the concept of grace 
helps us understand and love our brethren. We'll give them room and time to grow as our Father has given us room and time. Our demands will be no greater on them than God's demands. You cannot live happily with anyone who you expect to be already perfect in any area of Christian grace. A family is a terrible place to be when children are expected to be adults. A church is no blessed thing if there is no well-developed doctrine of growth where everyone must meet a standard of achievement and maturity already established by others who haven't met it. How could we forbear one another without granting the privilege to grow? How can we live with others who will not tolerate to some degree our imperfections and weaknesses? Not speaking of habitual immorality, not speaking of those who take a stand against the truth, who harbor heresy willingly in the heart, who are unteachable, rebellious, and proud, in which their pride is unchecked. We're not speaking of that kind of immaturity. That's worse than immaturity. That bespeaks spiritual death. But we're speaking of areas of real shortcomings, even sins, where striving against those sins is seen, and strenuous efforts to overcome those obstacles are evident. It is not for the person who has the shortcomings to defend himself by appealing to the tired phrase, nobody's perfect. But it is for his friends and brethren to remember that principle. Nothing more discouraging in a church or anywhere else than to have loved ones and friends and brethren give up on us. Have you ever had the experience? One way you have it maybe is somebody you knew in the past comes back into your life. They remember the way you were. They think you must still be that way because they don't understand the doctrine of growth. They don't know that it's possible for people to change. And isn't that what growth is? It's change. And so they come to you the next time assuming you're still the way you were and they judge you on that basis. And when you say, things have changed, it hurts, doesn't it, when they refuse to believe it. In a marriage, you make mistakes and you say and do things that hurt the spouse. If that spouse is never willing to forgive and give you another chance, it's not a very happy place to be, is it? And how discouraging is it when somebody who ought to give us the space God gives us won't do it? Somebody who doesn't deserve to demand perfection, but who does. Well, there are benefits, obviously, from considering the doctrine of spiritual growth. Encouraging those who have a long way to go and helping us live together while we're all trying to get there. Very good benefits. And there are two very important benefits from the study of this doctrine. So my intent today is to open up for you something of the doctrine of growing in grace. Not trying to be utterly exhaustive, but I want to open up this doctrine to you to help you think about it and to apply it to your heart. 
And the way I want to do it is by uncovering for you this subject under four headings. The first, I want us to consider the essence and the object of our spiritual growth. The essence and the object. Second, I want us to look at the importance of spiritual growth. Its importance. Third, I want us to view some of the characteristics of spiritual growth so we'll know it when we see it. And then some of the evidences in the fourth place of spiritual growth so we can discern whether we are growing or not. And finally then to hope to draw some observations and some lessons from what we've heard. First then, let us consider the subject of growth The surest sign of true conversion by looking at its essence and its object. The essence of spiritual growth, when we are told to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are to understand that growth as to its essence and its object. What is the object of spiritual growth and therefore its essence? Well, the object of spiritual growth is nothing less than increased conformity to the image of Christ himself. Simply put, the goal of the Christian's life is to be like Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As we see this point in that marvelous section of scripture which teaches us the doctrine of salvation. Romans is in the earlier part of your New Testament, if you're trying to find it in your Bible. Not familiar with these things. It's a precious thing to learn how to find books in your Bible. It's a great privilege that God gives us when some of us don't know and we haven't studied our Bibles to give us the privilege of coming to a place where they'll help us with it. Don't despise such help. Welcome it as God's goodness to you. Romans chapter 8 teaches us the great plan and working out of redemption in an encouraging passage beginning in verse 28. We read, We know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. So in verse 28, we have the word brought to our attention, purpose. God has a purpose. It is not man's purpose. It is God's purpose. And God, in carrying out that purpose, is causing everything in the world to work together to the accomplishment of that purpose. And then he explains to us what is God's purpose, which he is bringing about through all of the means of providence and redemption. Verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to what? Not simply to get a ticket to heaven. Not merely to have an experience somewhere along their lives in which they would be able to say, I have met Christ, I'm saved. But the purpose of God is nothing less than, in its ultimate expression, he has predestined those for whom he has set this purpose to be conformed to the image of his Son. Nothing less than that. 
is the purpose of God and is what God is going to make happen. It is not only his intent, but it is the guaranteed result of his work because it is God that is working to bring it about. It is God that is causing all things to work together for that ultimate good, conformity to his Son. It is not God who works all things together so that you may accumulate in this world everything you might want. It is God who is making all things work together for the ultimate good that he has purposed, which is really our best good, conformity to his Son. We are predestinated in God's purpose of grace to be like Jesus. Why? So that God may get glory. Our goal and motive in salvation and in sanctification and in our pursuit of holy living is that God may be glorified as the Lord taught us. Therefore, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ so that he might become, in verse 29, the firstborn among many brethren. God's building a family. And that family is made up of children. The firstborn, who is the rightful heir of the inheritance and the kingdom, and all of those who have been adopted into that family and who by grace have been given joint heirship with the natural born, the firstborn. And that family assumes that the children are like their father. What possible communion in family could there be if the children don't take on some of the characteristics of mom and dad? Now, in the spiritual realm, adoption does not, is not a situation in which the genetics of natural life are discounted. In natural life, if you adopt a child, he doesn't have mom and dad's genes, and it's not his nature necessarily to be like his mom and dad. He's not going to look like them probably. He probably won't have the same natural tendencies that they have, but that someone else has. But in grace, in God's adoption, there are other factors at work. Regeneration in which he changes the nature and the character of the person who he adopts, so that that person now has the principle of life in Christ Jesus planted within him, and that principle is destined to increase and grow. So that in the end, conformity to Christ occurs. Now we grow and we pursue growth so that God will be glorified not so that we can be better than others. We don't want to be better than others. We want to be like Jesus. We don't even want primarily to be better than we used to be. That's not the goal. We want to be like Christ. And if our only view is to be better than I used to be, it will tend to make me very introspective and morbid in my introspection. 
Because when I fail to grow or when I see problems, I tend to get so caught up in my not being up to a standard I set for myself that my eyes are off Christ and He no longer is the glory of the goal. And something can save you from that morbid introspection, and that is if your goal is to be like Christ, and your goal is to glorify Christ, and not a lesser goal, you will keep on that track, and you'll keep on that road, and you'll not be as prone to let your morbid introspection stop you along the way and send you into despair. Because, see, the goal is so high that you know you're not going to get there soon. And it's no surprise to you when you find yourself not measuring up to Christ's image. And so since that was the goal originally, you don't get disheartened that you don't reach such a high goal shortly. You continue on when you see your lack of it. So if you keep it clear that the essence and object of growth is the regular and continual transformation of yourself from what you were into what God is as imaged in His Son, that focus will spare you from a lot of waste and a lot of despair. And it will keep you from pride as well. The essence and object of our growth is conformity to Christ. Second, though, there is great importance in the doctrine of growth. This is a crucial thing. We must grow. Now, this vital importance to the doctrine of growing is seen in the fact that it is a commandment in the Bible. Surely God lays nothing on his people that is not essential for them. Surely God is not throwing out commandments and exhortations which have no meaning and have no importance. Surely he's not as we are, who wastes words and sets rules that have no purpose. If God commands us to grow spiritually, then surely it's an important thing. And it is. Let me suggest some of the reasons that spiritual growth, making progress, changing, being transformed from one stage of glory into another stage of glory, making, moving on from where we are to a higher level and a higher level of conformity to Christ, why it is so crucial and important. In the first place, growth spiritually makes us able to escape apostasy. Spiritual growth delivers from apostasy. Look at verse 17 again in 2 Peter chapter 3. Now you are familiar, many of you, with the epistle of 2 Peter. He's really concerned about the prevalence of false prophets and teachers among the people. He is concerned that Spurious and false doctrine will be brought in by very shrewd and creative men to lead the saints away. And he's quite conscious and very tender to this propensity among professing believers to go back, as he describes, according to the proverb, the dog returning to his vomit and the sow to her wallowing in the mire. And he's aware that that happens. And he's very much concerned about apostasy in his whole epistle. And he's warned us about that in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he brings it to a head in showing us the imminent coming of Christ. 
in reminding that the reason that he's delayed his coming is not because he's slack. So you who are wicked should not go bold in thinking, well, the things haven't changed since the founding fathers. Since the fathers fell asleep, things continue on. That's not the point. God is not slack. So don't get rash and bold and think you can continue in your wickedness infinitely because God's going to forget to keep his promise of judgment because the day of the Lord will come and it'll melt the very elements on which you depend. Air is going to disappear. Everything's going to melt with a fervent heat. The universe is going to be dissolved and renovated. And seeing such things, don't you think you better be careful how you live, he says. So his concern is so that you won't be tempted to fall away Beware, verse 17 comes to this conclusion. You, therefore, beloved. He's not speaking to people who are assumed to be reprobates or hypocrites. As the writer to Hebrews said, we are persuaded better things of you, brethren, though we thus speak. We speak evangelically to you and threaten you evangelically, but we don't threaten you evangelically, assuming you're hypocrites, pretending to be Christians, self-deceived, but really aren't. We call you beloved, but we warn you who we call beloved and whom charitably we give the benefit of the doubt to, that you beware. Knowing these things of beforehand, beware, beware lest what happens. Why do you need to beware? Lest being carried away with the error of the wicked. You see, you're not invulnerable to their error. You are prone to be carried away with their error. And unless you are wary, you will be. Beware! Lest you be carried away with the error of the wicked. And in doing so, you fall from your own steadfastness. And he's not speaking of a Christian slipping a bit from his earnestness, but limping his way into heaven with a few less rewards. He's speaking of the fall, which is the fall. Fall down never to get up again. The falling into the snare of the devil. The falling into the ultimate trap of perishing and perdition. Lest you fall, beware. And then in verse 18, he gives us the contrasting thing which will prevent the falling. If you don't want to fall, here's what you must do. If you don't want to apostatize and be carried away with the wicked, you better do this. Instead of falling with the wicked, in verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The imperative of growing, not being content where we are, but moving on in the knowledge of Christ and in the experience of grace is nothing less than a guard against losing what we think we have. It is nothing less than a protection against utterly losing our faith and going to hell. Now, we've preached a series on apostasy. I believe there's enough knowledge here to know that 
there is such a thing as one who has had great experience with God and great feelings toward God and great behavior in religious things, losing it and perishing in the end. Where there is not such a thing as a true believer ever falling completely. There is no such thing as one who is genuinely joined to Christ in salvation ever losing that saving unity. But there is such a thing as many who appear to be joined to Christ, are convinced that they're joined to Christ, believe and make others to believe that they're joined to Christ, being led astray by the error of the wicked and losing what appeared to be real salvation, only in the end to be manifested not ever to have been such. And yet there's this dynamic and difficult doctrine filled with tension in the New Testament that addresses real believers with warnings and says to real believers, beware lest you also. We are prone in our Aristotelian logic to think, well, why do I have to really beware so much if I'm really a believer? They've already said I won't really fall. So I don't have to be that critically wary. But see, there are two problems with that thinking. One is you don't know for sure your own heart. You could be mistaken in assuming you're a true believer. If indeed it is not your will to remove every sin from your life and to keep growing in Christ, you ought to question whether you're a true believer. Because true believers don't think that way. They don't look for ways to keep sin. They look for ways to rid themselves of sin. But the other thing you're forgetting is, it is this particular means whereby God is going to ensure that you stay. The means of taking warning, being wary, and growing in grace. The reason you'll not apostatize is because you'll grow. If you're alive, you'll grow. If you don't grow, you're not living. If you'll grow... You won't fall astray to the wicked. So you escape apostasy by growing spiritually. That's fairly important, don't you think? Your life is at stake. Your everlasting salvation is at stake. On whether you grow. Not on whether you come on to church. Not on whether you have leveled off in a nice, comfortable position as a Christian. Everyone who's ever been through this knows that once you level off, you're not growing, and you're not leveled off, you go down. You never reach a plateau in the Christian life from which you don't move in one direction or another. There is no status quo in the Christian life. It doesn't exist. You either apostatize or you grow. Grow so you will not die. Mortify sin so it will not mortify you. You kill it or it will kill you. Don't you know to whom you make yourselves servants to obey his servants you are? Whether of sin unto death or of righteousness unto life. You cannot stand still in spiritual position and condition. Can't happen. So you must grow. It's required for your life. Look back at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. 2 Peter 3, 9. 
as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward you, not willing that any should perish. The whole subject of this passage is the difference between living and dying eternally. God's concern is with your soul's destiny, whether you live or perish. And that's why you must grow in grace. There's another reason, though, that it's an important thing. And it's nothing less than the doctrine of the fullness of the stature of Christ. You must grow in grace because you've got a long way to go before you finish and fulfill God's purpose for you. What is the fullness of the stature of Christ? Turn back quickly with me to Ephesians chapter 4 and look at this. It's the thing for which God puts men into the church of Christ with gifts. It's the thing Paul had on the bur- as a burden on his back when he told the Corinthians, the authority God has given me was for your building up, not for your tearing down. The reason God puts you in a church with a pastor or pastors who have authority over you and who direct you and who require things of you is for your spiritual well-being. Because there's a goal involved in your salvation. Chapter 4 of Ephesians. Verse 11. The Lord Jesus, after he ascended, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors, teachers. And what was their function? For the perfecting of the saints. Perfecting. Not in one day. Not as a final mark, but a continual working of present tense progressive growth until ultimately they reach the final. The role and responsibility of those men whom Christ gives to the church in their gifts and calling is so that you may be perfecting. Constantly working on you. Constantly looking at you. Constantly quizzing you. Constantly praying for you. Preaching. Probing your conscience. Imposing on your private lives. Sticking their nose in your business. Asking things you don't want them to ask. Not letting you have a private spiritual life. There's no such thing. Rejecting the modern doctrine of pastoring that says the pastor has no right to interfere in the private lives of his people. Because it's not only his right, but his God-ordained duty to do so. If he can't deal with their private lives, how can he deal with their public lives unless he's dealing with nothing but hypocrites? And I'm not, for one, willing to pastor a church full of hypocrites who don't let me have any access to their conscience. Because it's their consciences for which I have to give account when I meet Christ. And I still fear that my work is not so much that I'm overbearing and lording it. My fear is I'm not enough probing. Perfecting of the saints to the work of the ministering unto the building up of the body of Christ. Till what? Till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a full grown man. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he goes on to discuss the implications of that. You have a long way to go, brethren. The goal is that we mature into the measure of the fullness of Christ. I don't have time to go into all the aspects of what that will mean. But certainly it has implications for the way you pray. 
and to how, how powerfully you pray for the effect you have on your neighbors, for your witnessing boldness, for the holiness of your private and public life, for your blamelessness in your walk with Christ, for your boldness in the faith, for your tenderheartedness, your compassion and love and spirit of service for brethren, your unity in the church, your willingness to be taught, your humility, your meekness, your readiness to act and to serve, not living to yourself but living to God, and the development of those graces that make your home happy and holy instead of chaotic. All of that involved in becoming conformed to Christ. And I dare say that many of us have lost sight of that and have accepted much less of ourselves than that. And are tolerating things in our hearts and our homes that militate against the very purpose for which we were called. Grow in grace. Because you have a long way to go to attain to the fullness of Christ. The means of grace are given us for that purpose. The fullness of the stature of Christ. Turn back, if you will, in Second Peter to chapter 1. This is on the heart of the apostle when he writes the whole letter. He's not skipping from theme to theme. His great burden is the growing of men and women of God and their continued progress. He's not willing to accept a status quo. And he knows the implications of a status quo accepted. Nothing less than their perishing. In chapter 1, verse 4. Whereby he has granted unto us his precious and exceeding great promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world by lust. Yea, and for this very cause, for what very cause? For the cause of being a partaker of the divine nature and escaping the world's lust, adding on your part all diligence. And he goes through the list of the diligent application of growth. Adding to your faith this and to that, that, and on and on and on. Godliness, brotherly kindness, love. These are things to be cultivated, pursued, and increased in the saints. If they are not, you'll fall flat on your face. You won't make it. You'll fail to reach the standard. But look at verse 8. If these things are yours and abound... They make you not be idle nor unfruitful under the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he that lacks these things is blind, seeing only what is near, having forgotten the cleansing of his old sins. Wherefore, brethren, give the more diligence to make your calling and election sure. You can't be sure God has called you and chosen you if you're not progressing in these things. And showing diligence in these things. If you're sitting around here content to just spectate, you have no confidence of your election and calling. Now, I get ahead of myself, but I tell you, the solution to that is not to quit the church and quit and leave and go home today, because I just told you that. The solution to that is to figure out how you can get going here. So you can gain confidence in your calling and election. That's what he's saying. Due diligence to make it sure. If it's not sure, don't quit and say, well, what's the use? I've been a Christian all this time and I'm still not. I might as well quit. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because you don't, you don't work. It hasn't worked because you've been sitting back there doing nothing. And the commandment is, you do your diligence. This is not done by waiting on God. This is done by taking the bull by the horns. 
You show me one example of anybody that grew spiritually who didn't involve his whole redeemed humanity in it, and I'll, I'll change my theology. But I'll have to cut out some Bible pages to do it. Don't hide behind. Well, that's God's business. He's sovereign. He certainly is. And sovereign Lord King God sitting on the throne says, you better be diligent or you're, gonna not, you're not going to make it. He says, make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble. That's the point. That's the problem. That's what's going to happen if you don't do these things. For thus shall be richly supplied to you the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've got to measure up to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And that's a high standard filled with all manner of duties and diligence and all these characteristics. It's not enough to be able to say, well, I once made a decision. I believed in Jesus. I know I'm saved. I'm not impressed by that. Neither is the Lord. It's only enough whenever you're doing all you can do to progress toward the goal of being like Christ. This is a very crucial thing. You're, the very judgment day is at stake here. The very judgment day. Verse 17 is a culmination of the of chapter 3 is a culmination of this whole passage about the coming judgment. On the judgment day, Christ is coming to call you to account. How will you be prepared for that day? How can you prepare for that day? How can you guard your soul from that day so that when you stand before Christ, He doesn't say to you, Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. How can you avoid that sentence and hear those precious words enter into the joy of the Lord? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The only biblical directive to guarantee that that I know about is not to sit back and trust your previous experience. Not to focus on your attainments at present. Not to say, well, at least I'm saved. I'm in the church. I'm doing the minimum. No, you must grow. You must grow. This is not optional. We don't have two kinds of Christians in this text. That means there are three kinds of people. There are the wicked, there are the righteous, and there are the semi-righteous. No such thing. There are those that love Jesus, and there are those that don't love Jesus, and there are those that sort of love Jesus. No! There are those who will be divided into two camps on the judgment day. Goats and sheep. One practice wickedness. One practice righteousness. You say, well, I'm sort of in between that, Pastor. Honestly, I don't practice righteousness. I haven't made any progress in 15 years. But I'm not a wretched, wicked person. You keep that line, brother, and one day you will be a wretched, wicked person in your own eyes. You're just setting yourself up for God to show you what your problem really is. Don't you sit there smugly and say, well, I'll never go back and do some of the stuff I used to do before God saved me. Now, I don't plan to go forward and do some of the stuff real saints do, but I'm not going to go back and do that. I know better than that. No, no. God will spox you. God will trap you with that kind of pride. You are at this minute capable of doing everything bad you ever did and worse. Even though you may be smart enough to remember what it cost you and how much it hurt you and you don't plan ever to do it, God, if need be, will let you fall worse than you were to show you your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. 
unless you pursue aggressively with your whole redeemed humanity, Jesus Christ in his image, you will lose ground. And my dear brethren, after what you've been through, do you want to lose ground? After what it took you to get to this spot, you want to go back? You can't. God is not mocked whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. And lack of diligence is sin. It's an important thing to grow. It's crucial. But look quickly with me at some characteristics of spiritual growth. It's good to know this. It's good to help us understand it so we can grow. The first characteristic in the third place of spiritual growth is that it is rooted in union, let me say, in vital union with Christ. It is rooted in vital union with Christ. You're familiar, I believe, with John chapter 15, where the Lord says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleanses it that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, so neither can you except you abide in me. And he goes on to discuss that imagery of the vineyard. The true vine and the branches that grow out of that vine and bear fruit. It's important to understand that spiritual growth is not done by your exerting of your righteous power. Even though it does require the whole engagement of your redeemed humanity. You don't make a single piece of fruit pop out by your own strength. You can come to church, you can pray your prayers, you can sing your hymns, you can read your Bible, you can try to do good if it is not built upon the foundation of the life of Christ in you and the dependence of Christ's grace in you and the work of the Spirit in you. It's all going to fall to the ground. It's an issue that some in the deeper life movement have grappled with and attempted to solve. That's what they're trying to solve. They've solved it incorrectly. But they understand that in personal self-exertion, you don't grow spiritually. It is personal exertion in the realm of the life of Christ, in dependence upon Christ, in a humble recognition that nothing will happen unless He makes it happen. And so it's the engagement of your redeemed humanity in sweet communion with Christ. It's not over here doing a bunch of duties and waiting for God to say, Good, give you a a little brownie point. Give you a star for that. Do some more duties. And I do it all on in my strength and I fight the devil and I make it. It's not battling against some sin in your own power and saying, If I can do this, then the Lord will reward me and I'll be promoted and I'll be a little higher up in my faith. That doesn't work that way. At every point... You're on your knees begging God for fresh supplies of the Spirit of grace. And you're crying to God for new understanding and wisdom which you don't have. And you never get to a point where you don't feel that. In fact, one of the characteristics of a man who is maturing is that he increases in his sense of dependence. Not vice versa. Prayer is the language of dependence. That's why mature Christians pray more and pray more effectively than others. 
because they're more dependent. They recognize their dependence more. Just the opposite of what you think. Some of you have been trying to grow all these years so you don't need the Lord so much. You think spiritual growth means that if you get to a certain stature, the devil can't bother you. You can't kill a few sins off and then you're invulnerable. That's missing the point. You're, you've, the devil already got you if you think that way. He's blinded you. He's let you kill some external sin and you're sitting around saying, Now I'm spiritual. You've missed the whole point. That's not in union with Christ. That's meritorious achievement. And God rejects the proud. And that's why some of you haven't been allowed to make much progress over some of your external problems and sins because the Lord's got a deeper controversy with you and wants you to learn a deeper lesson. You've been trying to quit cussing and quit losing your temper and quit smoking and quit doing this and quit doing that and you keep fighting on this, quit lusting and all this and you keep focusing and focusing and you keep failing and failing and you stay in this pit of despair. You don't have the boldness to pray. You can't lead your family. You can't pray to God. You can't tell anybody about Jesus. Your conscience lives in smiting you. You just walk around with your tail between your legs. And if you ever do anything that looks kind of righteous, you sort of, you sort of feel like a hypocrite. You come to church, you feel like you're faking it. Because your conscience is gnawing at you all the time. And you're focusing on these areas of, of, of behavior that you know are wrong, and you can't seem to get answered prayer. Lord, deliver me, and He doesn't deliver you. It may be that He's got His finger on something deeper and you're not looking. Maybe, we are, maybe your motive for conquering that sin is wrong. Maybe you want to conquer it so you can feel spiritual. Maybe it's pride in you that, boy, once I get this thing, then I can teach others. If I can reach that level, I could be a deacon in the church. Maybe even a pastor someday. Brethren, that's not the goal. Every pastor that has any sense and has any maturity knows that his goals can never be off Christ. My, my goal in life must be conforming to Christ, not measuring up to the ministry. If I ever start trying to just qualify for the ministry and that's the highest my goal is, I'll forget Christ and I'll lose both. If you ever start trying to qualify for church acceptance or a standard of perceived righteousness here, you've lost your sight of the goal. It's in union with Christ that spiritual growth takes place. I don't have time to go much further in that, but I want you to understand it and perhaps you can do some meditating on it. But in the second place, characteristics of spiritual growth not only include that it's rooted in union with Christ, but spiritual growth is slow. Slow. need to be told that. Because some of you have given up the ship often because it didn't happen fast enough. It's sort of like sitting on your porch and watching your grass grow. That's painfully discouraging, isn't it? You can watch grass grow for a long time. Don't take your eyes off the grass and stay depressed. And the reason you're depressed, you can't see any growth. Now, someone that visited with you a couple of weeks ago comes back to the porch and says, How are you doing? Boy, the grass is long around here. Man, how it's changed since the last time I saw it. And you say, What? I've said he watched it my whole time. Take my word for it. I know it hasn't grown. That's one of the reasons it's so vital to be in communion with other brethren in the church who can say, I've seen progress in you when you haven't. Doesn't it help you when a brother says, I've seen progress? You don't. And you don't even like to hear that. You're insistent on saying you haven't made progress. But an objective and wiser brother says, 
there's been progress. There's been progress. Sometimes that helps. Well, growth is slow. See, many fail to plant in righteousness because it's going to take too long to reap. They're too impatient. The process is too difficult. They don't want to wait. They want growth now. Lord, make me mature tonight. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, give me patience now. You think about that? Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? Lord, make me a patient man. Come on. Hurry. You see what? You do that. A lot of us do that. Growth, if it's genuine growth, and especially the sturdier of growing things, take longer to develop. I'm tempted not to plant an oak tree in my property because I'll never get to see it when it's big. There's just no way. If it, I, I want one now that's up there. I'd like to have some walnuts, big, gigantic things like we've seen down in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. These humongous walnut trees. I can't get them the way you get them. I've even thought, it's passed my mind, I wonder if there's an outfit somewhere that could bring one in, those giant ones, and some gigantic truck and put it in a huge hole, as is, without it being affected. Well, maybe there's some legitimacy to that. When somebody's ruined some land and you want to start recovering it, to get a good head start. But you know my, what we've been told about trees. You can plant a tree that's fairly large in your yard and have the big money and bring it, stick it in the ground, or you can stick a little sapling in. And we've been told recently that ultimately they're going to get to the, about the same space at the same time. This little one's going to go real fast and catch up with that other one because that's the way it is. This other one is not growing as fast as it did when it was little. God intends that the primary means of growth be slow. In the doctrine of sanctification, we've heard the words gradual. The gradual process. Brethren, growth takes time. Those of us who are parents are amazed at how fast they've grown. But while they were growing, it did not look like it was going fast. We want them to make progress. And some days we're right back where we were last week. I thought we already crossed this bridge. I thought we already taught you that. I thought you had already conquered it. You have dr- but my children are a good carnal reflection to, on me and my spiritual progress. I can hear the Lord asking me the same question. We had already been across this. I thought you already learned that. As the writer to Hebrews says, by now you should have been teachers and you're not able. But you see, we are slow in our growth, but it's not always bad. God does build oaks. He's not just a willow tree planter. They grow a lot faster, but they fall apart a lot better, a lot more often. The limbs fall off those things. They're not nearly as strong. And you don't generally see an oak tree As if you visited the Battle of Gettysburg ground, you see the oak cluster out there. If they'd have been certain types of trees, you wouldn't be able to visit them now. They would have died off and gone. There's a piece of history standing there because of the kind of tree. Some of you, you see, I want to be standing at the end, not just part of the time in the middle. I'm not as excited now about the flowers and the fruit now as I am at bearing fruit later. I want to get to the end, and I must be ready to continue a battle that is going to last a long time. Growth is slow. Sometimes it's unsteady. Sometimes it's retarded. Sometimes it's inconsistent. But in the Christian life, it's very similar to nature. 
It normally is slow. Now, you have growth spurts. You have times when drastic changes take place almost overnight, like a child going into puberty. In one year's time, feet size, bodily hair, all kinds of things overnight, attitudes, perspectives, and it's just, it's like shock. That's why 13 and 14-year-olds sometimes have such trouble adapting. Their whole system has changed overnight. They don't know how to act. They stumble on themselves. Their body's different. Everything's out of line. And it happened more, uh, it, it didn't happen in the ordinary gradual way. They didn't have time to adjust. It's part of the problem of future shock in our own culture. The technology has gone so fast, we, we sort of stand, we don't know what to do. We don't even know how to run the machines. We, it's every, by the time you learn, there's a new technology, that's, that machine's out of date. Well, that's the way it is in the Christian life. Normally, it's slow. But, brethren, it is also lasting. If it is true spiritual growth, it is lasting. Proverbs 4 says that the Christian, that the saints, the righteous man's light increases more and more till the perfect day. It's not going to stop till you get to the end. If it's rooted in Christ, if it's that good, solid, gradual growth that is dependent on the nutrients and the ingredients and the exercises and all the disciplines that grow slowly, yes, but that grow steadily, yes, it'll get to the end. It's a lasting thing if it's true spiritual growth. You see, we're not talking about impressions or emotions, short-term spurts of ecstasy or activity. Some of you may be able to point back in the past. I used to serve the Lord fervently. For a time, I was really fruitful. What's happened? You didn't grow. And it may mean that that fruitful exercise was a futile activity. It may not have been evidence of Christian growth. Growth is a pattern. Living things grow. At different rates, yes, but they grow. Are you growing? Not have you arrived. Not how fast have you grown. Are you growing? Are you pursuing growth? You see, the word that falls among the soil that has the tares in it when it starts to grow up, the tears choke it off. The word that fell among, on the stony ground, the shallow soil, it sprang up fast. And that's the kind of growth that our generation wants. They want to make a decision for Christ, get all the problems solved, get their marriage put together, get their life turned around, and if in three weeks it hasn't happened, then Jesus doesn't work. They come for counseling, 30-minute counsel. They go home, the problem faces them again. They haven't had a magic victory, they give up the counselor. They're not content with slow growth. They want it all now or they don't want any now. But by that same token, the other kind of seed that fell among the tares, it starts to grow and those weeds choke off the growth because it wasn't real. The word wasn't mixed in true saving faith and so it does not last in its growth. But true spiritual growth that is vitally united to Christ and based upon truth, that lasts unto bearing fruit unto eternal life. He shall perfect that which concerns me. The Lord will perform what he has begun till the day of Jesus Christ. It is God that is at work in us both to will and to continue to do his good pleasure. 
Spiritual growth lasts and continues. That means you don't quit when the emotions have died down. When the honeymoon's over, the marriage really gets down to business. It's how our president will deal with the very real problems of February and March that will determine a lot of his presidency, not how he lives in the euphoria of the recent election. It's how he grapples with real problems on a day-to-day basis that determines his presidency's successfulness, not how well he felt when the people of God, when the people of the nation elected him. And you see, marriage is not built during the honeymoon. All some ingredients may be put there that'll really make a difference, but it's not built then. It's built day in and day out. When you go for months according to a planned routine of obedient behavior because it's right and you refuse to give in to the old temptations of raising the voice, of screaming at the spouse, of stomping off in a pout, and you grow and you discipline yourself and you discipline yourself. And one day you look back and say, Honey, it's better than it was at the beginning. We love each other more than we did at the beginning. There's more fruit growing out of our relationship. And I would apply this to your marriages. Some of you are newly married. Don't get so discouraged that you're not up to the great magnitude of mature relationship that some around you may be. It takes time. But if it's real and if love's there and if the ingredients are applied consistently, it'll last and it'll get better. Shining more and more under the perfect day is the path of the righteous. It's a pathway of light, and the light increases. You ought, as a Christian today, to be able to look back and say, it's been progress made. I'm not what I used to be. There's growth. There's evidence of growth. I have a long way to go, but look where I've been. Thanks be to God's grace. You ought to be able to show evidence of it. Well, what are some of the evidences? I must hurry. What are some of the evidences of Christian growth? Well, the first one I want to list is this. An increased dependence on God and less on self. The mature Christian is not the stud who is able to handle things without counsel, without prayer, without time and patience. He's the man who has learned the hard way that those things are indispensable to progress. Increase dependence on God and less on self. Maturity in the Christian faith is marked by meekness, not by might. I would say to some of you young men who think that macho means external, the size of your pectorals and the development of your chest, and the strength of your biceps, I would suggest to you that is not impressive to God. I would advise you who are spiritual, in your spiritual thinking, believe that we will be pleased or that God will be pleased or that you will have arrived once you've measured up to certain external standards of the rest of the church. My dear friend, get rid of that. That's not the goal. You'll get frustrated with that. We're not, we, don't, we don't have some standard for your behavior that unless you reach it at a certain time, we're not going to love you. We've got enough fights of our own and our own growth. There's nothing that... No, we're not waiting for you to be like the rest. 
We're not holding you hostage to a demanded schedule of growth. We would be utterly foolish and hypocritical to do such a thing. Don't try to reach up to our standard. That's not a high enough standard anyway. Run to Christ and run toward the goal of being like Christ. And as you do it, you'll find that the people who respect your Christian maturity the most will be people that see you being more humble, more prayerful, more patient, more dependent on God, not the other way. The goal is not to get where you don't need to pray. Just the opposite is true of a maturing man. He prays more. You don't want to get to a place where you've minim- you can pray in three minutes a day and then do all the work for God. Really, the more you grow in Christ, the more time you spend praying and the less time you spend activity- in activity. Because you begin to learn this principle that God is the one that has to bring his power and work to bear. That's why I believe the apostles, when they appointed deacons, said, let these guys be given the job so we can give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And prayer was the first one mentioned. There may be significance in that. Increased dependence on God. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, the gifted ancient apostle says, our sufficiencies of God. Not that we count ourselves as sufficient for anything. He's a guy's nothing. Of anybody who had a right to boast on his achievements and his spiritual maturity, he could, we're nothing. Least than the less, less than the least of all the apostles. Less, the, the, the greatest of sinners, our sufficiencies of God. A second thing, though, an evidence of growth, and be very patient with me, sometimes preaching takes time. An enlarged concern for God's kingdom marks a maturing man. Maybe I should say an enlarging concern for God's kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that when Christ saves a man, <clears throat> the man no longer lives to himself, but unto him who loved him and died for him and rose again. A distinguishing characteristic of a true Christian is that the primary focus of his life is on the kingdom of God and not on his, his own. The advancement of Christ and not on his own. Now, if he's growing in grace... He is growing in the, with a larger heart for the kingdom of God. If some of you were to ask yourself honestly and answer honestly the question this morning, how do I fit on the balances as to the perspective and relationship and ratio of my seeking my own things compared to my seeking the things of Christ? Some of you would be so woefully weighted down on your own side that you would be embarrassed to tell us. What do you do about it? You begin to give yourself to the things of Christ and to make yourself seek the things of Christ and start denying yourself because Christian growth, which is so vital to your survival, is marked by an increasing and enlarging heart for the kingdom of God. You're not the only one involved in this work. Your perspective is not the only one that's important. Your experience isn't the only one that's brought into this building Sunday by Sunday. Your personality, your judgment, your background, all your contributions are one among many. And there may be greater concerns for the kingdom of God than what's on your heart so strongly right now. 
You may have to defer to others' concerns. You may have to pray for people beyond your knowledge. You may have to pray for a church you've never seen and who's never seen you into striving and sweating and hurting over them because it's Christ's kingdom. And the more you grow, the more you'll do that. A mature church is a church that is marked by praying a lot for others that they don't even know. There's nothing in it for them directly. Just Christ's kingdom. And they rejoice when God's word is preached. The apostle Paul was able to rejoice when man preached Christ for the wrong reasons. Because Christ is preached. That's maturity. You don't go off huffy because somebody did it a little different from you. And they've got a problem and then you refuse even to recognize anything good's done. Them. That's not maturity. That's childish. Or quickly... A third evidence of spiritual growth is an expanded affection for God's person and presence. An expanded or expanding affection for God's person and presence. I was going to read to you Psalm 84. Let me ask you to read it at home. Let me ask you to meditate on what is the central core of the concern of the writer. But the issue there is remarked time and again in all those 12 verses of Psalm 84. That it's God he wants. It's God he loves. It's God he seeks. It's God's presence he delights in. How amiable are thy tabernacles, the psalmist says. How welcome is the house of God where God dwells. Oh, I love God, the shadow of the Almighty. I love to crawl up under it. Lord, my soul thirsts after you as in a dry and thirsty land. The more mature you get in the faith, the more you'll love God's presence. This will be seen in a more purposeful time in your closet. If you're growing in grace, you are increasing in effective closet time. Maybe not necessarily in the length of time, but in the effect of what you get done in that time. Because your heart is growing in a desire to meet God. And until you've met God, you're not satisfied. It's not enough to read the verses, say the prayer, I've done my devotionals. So when the pastor comes to visit and asks, how are you doing in your devotionals? I can say, I'm having them every day. So what? If you're not meeting God. You see, once again, the goal is conformity to Christ, not to an existing standard of Christian behavior, not to be up to snuff to the pastor's measure, but up to Christ, not just to get him to like me, but so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. An old apostle in jail had as his longing driving force in life to know Christ. And he said, not that I were already perfect or had already attained, but I press forward. Forgetting what's behind and pressing and looking to the things that are in front. I move aggressively toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is that high calling of God in Christ Jesus? It's knowing God. It's conformity to Christ. It's measuring up into the body of Christ to the fullness of its stature. Longings more for God 
than for freedom from hell. And let me give you an instance, and I believe I'm going to have to stop at this point so that at least this part can get your mind started with this. If you are growing in grace and therefore have an expanding affection for God's person and presence, you'll notice this. The sweeter the comforts you get in drawing near to God, the hungrier your soul will be for more holiness. The hypocrite is different. The one who has deceived himself is different. He feels God's presence. Maybe he gets all desperate because God gets him on, over between a rock and a hard place and he sees the need and he understands what he's been doing wrong. He runs and repents and he confesses and God shows mercy and blesses him. Maybe he knows he's dry in worship and he says, Lord, help. Uh, make the hymns mean something to my heart. Help me read my Bible. So God does. In grace and mercy, God's Spirit comes and speaks to him and warms him and the breeze of heaven blows over his soul. And it's also precious and he tastes the powers of the world to come. And he partakes in the Holy Spirit. And it feels wonderful and he's thrilled. And he gets assurance from it. And he says, surely I'm in. Surely God loves me. This is precious. And what does he do? As soon as he's free from that experience, he runs back into sin. Or back to the world. Or runs back someplace where he really likes to be. Now, because why? Because he's got what he wanted. He got his assurance. He's no longer afraid maybe God's done him in. He's no longer afraid maybe God's thrown him away. That's what he was afraid of. That's why he repented. And he repented so he could make sure God loved him. I'm sorry, God. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Oh, okay, good. Go back and do the same sin again. That's one of the reasons we repeat sin. Because our motive in repentance was not to know God and to love God and to get near God and stay, but to remove the pressure of wrath to come from our consciences so that as soon as the pressure's gone, the repentance is gone, the dread of the sin is gone, and the love of righteousness is gone. And that's why for some in this place, the only sweet times you've ever had were on Sundays. Because you from the heart are not motivated to abide with Christ for His sake. And it takes somebody else's labors and prayers to work up means of grace which do indeed warm your heart, but not because from the depth of your heart you were given to it yourself. You see, if all you get in your growing is what others give you in public ministry, you are not growing. That reveals a wrong motive. And it's a dangerous and dreadful thing. If you're growing, you are growing in your affections for God's person and presence. If I have the Lord... That's enough for me. My heart and my flesh fail, but thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, brethren, 
I would be a fool to assume nobody needs to hear that in this place. And because I know many of you need to hear that, and because I need to hear it, I want to drive home to your heart that there's nothing more crucial in your existence than to get this issue settled. Is it God I want? Is it God I love? Or is it something God could give me without my having to deal with Him? Why do you want to go to heaven? Is it to be with God and to learn the vastness of the beauties of the perfections of the God who told you that all day this day is His? The God whose law bothers your desires continually? Let me ask you a question and we'll close it. If you could be told that you could commit adultery and it would be okay with God, would your heart welcome the news? If you could believe you could rob a bank and it wouldn't be considered by God to be sin and wrong, would you then be glad to go take what belongs to another man because it's not going to condemn you to hell? If you could lie and God would allow it, would you? In some situation in which if you told the truth, you'd get in trouble. If you didn't have to be here today in order to please God. If God said it's up to you, either way is fine. It's an option. It's nice if you want to, but it's not a law. It's not something you should do if you don't feel like it. And if God says it will not affect your eternal destiny a bit. If you stay home and sleep and watch football all day, don't miss Disney World tonight. See it all. Get involved in it all. You don't even have to show up. You're going to go to heaven. I'm perfectly pleased. Would your heart welcome the news secretly and gladly down inside and say, well, and then I think we will change our schedule a bit around our house. I mean, why do we have to slavishly do this every it does get a little old. It does get a little tiresome. Why? Because you see what's happening here and what ought to be happening here and what God has promised will happen here when His people gather is that He meets with them. His special presence is promised to the gathering of the house of God. I will dwell among them and be their God and they shall be my people. And in the Bible that is especially true of the gathering. You're saying that if you could be away from God without being condemned for it, you'd be glad. You see the point? It's not God you love. It's not God you seek. And it's not God you have. Spiritual growth, because it started with the roots of love for God and desire for God is evidenced by continuing and increasing desire for and love of God. Check yourselves to see, do you love God? Do you desire God? If all you had was God, would that be enough for you? And where you don't measure up to that, brethren, repent of it, face it, apologize to God, 
Come to grips with his forgiveness and ask him for grace to put into your heart that which is very little there, if at all. It may be that some are sitting with us this morning. This stuff has blown your mind. You don't even know what we're talking about. You never heard anything like this. It's all Greek to you. You don't even know who God is. You'd like to. You wouldn't be here if you weren't looking. But maybe there's not even the root of the matter in you, much less the fruit. Let me look to you and say, to you the invitation is wide open from God. To as many as shall call upon the name of the Lord, He'll hear and save you. And all of a sudden your whole goals in life will be changed and your whole look will be different. And you'll start on a path of growth toward a a destiny that is glorious and delectable. Nothing less than conformity to God and His Son. And the sweetness of that will so far surpass the little dainties of this world you've known that you'll be astounded it took you so long to find it. And you'll live your days giving thanks to God for saving you out of that junk. I invite you to Christ. I command you to repent of sin when you've not made God your God. You're an idolater. And I address this church that if you find in you a less than a love for the person in the presence of God, you must grow in grace in that respect. And you must pursue that so that that becomes all you live for. And brethren, it may take some cutting off of hands and plucking out of eyes and changing of schedules to get to that. And it will all depend on how much you want it as to how much you're willing to do to get it. May God have mercy on us. And may we be found to be a people who are growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. Perhaps if God will allow us, we'll do more with this at a later time. But I hope that this helps us to come to grips with at least the issue. That it's an absolute necessity to grow. And God's willing to help us do it in His Son. And that we may well be able to examine how we are doing in that process and correct some bad course and some bad behavior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how pitifully we are able to expound such a a doctrine. But we ask you that at least you would put it into the hearts and consciences of your people not to judge by men's standards but to look at the goal of being like Jesus and that we would in our grief over how far we are unconformed to him might have hope that you have purposed that we be completely conformed to him and that you would give us vigor and encouragement that we may employ all of our redeemed faculties to growing. Surely, Lord, if you've commanded us to do it, you've placed it within our hands to do it. Help us to do it. Lord, may we next week know more of Jesus from experience than we knew today. And may grace be more abundant in us than it was today. We recognize the nature of it as being relatively slow. But we plead, O Lord, that as long as it can fit within your purpose and glory, you would do it as quickly as you can. That you would make us to grow in grace and a sweet knowledge of your Son. Lord, give to this church maturing and growing so that we may be encouraged by progress. 
to the perfect day to which we look and for which we wait. Lord, haste the day when the growing will be swallowed up in glory. We thank you for your goodness and for your Son and pray your mercies on those who have not yet begun to grow that you may make them alive in Christ and that we may rejoice with them and they join us in your vineyard. Lord, hear us and seal these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.